Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 21. Have you ever uh, heard yourself say or hear somebody near you say, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars? Oh, really? <laughs> Bernus Canner wrote a book, Are You Normal About Money? And it's about Americans and how far they will go to make a buck. Now, I read about this in Discipleship Journal. And this is uh, what she discovered. For a million dollars, 65% would live on a deserted island for a year. You're going, yeah? Uh, yeah? 30% would spend six months in jail for a crime they didn't commit for a million dollars. For $3,000, 24% would reveal a friend's deep, dark secret they have swore to keep. <laughs> Sell your friendship for that, okay? For $500... 66% would kiss a stranger. For $50, 75% would kiss a frog. <laughs> I don't know what that last one <laughs> tells you about uh, that. And I, don't, I haven't figured out whether the frogs should be insulted or complimented by that. <laughs> but evidently... Most people don't think that's that big a deal because uh, all it would take is $75 for them to do that. Uh, what, what I'm talking about here basically is compromise, isn't it? In other words, these are things that, that ordinarily you, you wouldn't do, but for a certain amount of money, at least this percentage of people would consider doing these things. What about spiritually? What about compromise in the area of spiritual matters? That's what we're going to be talking about today from this passage. Let me encourage you to give your attention to this. We're going to begin in chapter 21 with verse 17. As you remember, Paul uh, made this trek to Jerusalem. Some had counseled him not to come. He felt constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and this is what happened there. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? 
they'll certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. That would be a Nazarite vow. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who've believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we read this account, it's uh, sometimes when you, you read these accounts, it's hard to even understand and, and see all the ramifications, and that's why we are asking you by your Spirit to teach us, to show us why you preserve this account, what the application is for us today here in our city, in our, in our neighborhood in our church, in our home. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I used the expression uh, in, in terms of the outline and the title for this message, Towing the Line of Compromise. Uh, the idea of towing the line, uh, you, you're probably familiar with that, but basically it's uh, the idea of coming right up to the line, putting your toe up to it. It comes especially from sports, from races, and, and things like that where uh, you come right up to, the say, the starting line. You can't cross over it, but you come right up to it as close as you can get. And the reason I use that phrase is because I think that's, that's what we see with the Apostle Paul here. Now, I realize, because at first reading, you may say, Where, where's that coming from? Where is he compromising? What's going on here? Let me recount a little bit of, of what's taken place here. Uh, Paul finally gets to Jerusalem. He gets a warm reception, meets up with James. Now, if you remember, they... Uh, he and James had uh, met in Jerusalem before uh, in, in terms of discussing uh, the, the need for circumcision and that, that kind of a thing. There was a church council there. They were in on a debate. They made their decision. They pronounced their decision, sent it back to the churches, and so on. So their, their position on all this is clear. And yet... What goes on here is that 
James says, you know what, we, we're having a problem here. And that is that there's a rumor going on about you. And especially here in Jerusalem, uh, verse 21, this is what it says, they've, uh, they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. First of all, that rumor was a lie. That wasn't Paul's message. However, in ministry, I've seen men destroyed by rumors that weren't true, by things that were said that were a lie because of rep a reputation being destroyed or at least compromised. And so it was a serious thing. Some might say, well, why didn't he just say that ain't true, you know, and, and move on? He felt like it need, needed to be dealt with. And so James, this one that he had uh, been a, a fellow soldier in a battle with before, James and others basically say, Paul, here's how you can address it. Here's how you can show those people that that's not really the way you feel about the customs of the Jews and so on. He says, you know what, right now there are four men who've taken a vow and they're going to be presenting themselves at a temple. And we would like for you to join them. Now in this vow, uh, what would take place is every day there would be a a ceremonial purification, um, some commentators say, for up to seven days, six, seven days. And then the way it would end would be in the temple with a sacrifice. James said, how about you take part in this and not only take part in, in the purification part, but uh, these guys are poor, and so how about you pay for them, which would have been the custom of someone who was able to pay for another to, in order to help them and so on. So that wasn't so much the problem, but the problem was this. To end it in the temple with a sacrifice? Why were sacrifices made? Why were they ever made among the Jews? What was the message of a sacrifice? Is your sin needs to be taken care of. And so we do these animal sacrifices to take care of our sin. And all through the Old Testament, animal sacrifices had been given day after day, year after year. And all of them were pointing to the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So the problem is, there's no more need for a sacrifice. And to take part in a sacrifice would be to imply that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. That's serious. 
that would be sending the wrong message. Now, if it's sinking in, if you're saying, whoa, what in the world? What, what got into Paul? Why would he do that? He doesn't believe that. I want us to back up a, a moment because I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and James as well in terms of their motives. I think their motives, so far as I can tell from what's recorded, were right. Here's what it says in verse 24, the second part. If you do all these things, James is saying, thus all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Here's what I believe their, their motive was. I think, I think James and, and the others there were, were saying, look, we can clear up this bad rumor about you. We've talked about it. Here's what you do. Do this. We think that'll clear it up. And then you'll have a greater hearing here in Jerusalem. I believe that was their motive. For his reputation and to enable him to have a, a good hearing of the gospel so that there wouldn't be rumors flying around. Some commentators go even farther than me. I'm, I'm saying I think even though his action might not have been right, that his motives are, are, are right. Some commentators say his actions were even right. He was just uh, going along with his philosophy of ministry that we can read in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, verse 19, where it says, Though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. So they're saying he, 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 he was just being consistent with that, and he was going along with it. He knew better, but he thought that that would help him somehow relate. To the Jews. Now remember, what we're doing, what I'm doing here on Sunday is Monday morning quarterbacking on the Apostle Paul. And I, and I want to be the first one to say, when I'm Monday morning quarterback my own ministry, I see hundreds of mistakes. <laughs> and almost every time I get through one situation, I look back and I think how I could have done that better, hopefully to learn from it, but there's plenty more mistakes out there to be made. So in one sense, it's not fair for me to Monday morning quarterback on the Apostle Paul, but we've got to look at, at these actions because good intentions by themselves are not enough to overcome wrong actions. And that's what I'm afraid he fell into. Even though he might have had right motives and James might have had right motives, I think the wrong thing was done. Steve Camp, who is in the Christian music industry, said this in Billboard magazine. He said, the question is, do you compromise yourself slightly 
to gain more exposure for the gospel message. And they, you know, they're always coping with that. If somebody tells them to do something and, and they say, this will make you more famous, and then you know, he's saying you can justify in your mind that if I'm more famous, then I'll have um, more people I can speak the gospel to. And so he said that's, that's what we're always dealing with in this industry. But he says this, in doing so, have you then watered down the truth and made it a half-truth, which makes it into a lie? That's a real concern. Jesus, Jesus asked his followers to choose the narrow way, but he added, if you follow me, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Now, why did Paul fall into the trap of this dangerous compromise? I'm convinced that pragmatism took over here. Now, when we talk about pragmatism, it's a philosophy that basically the, the test for uh, if, if something is okay to do pragmatically is, does it work? And that becomes the highest test. So you'll see slogans like, truth is what works. Now, I mention that because we're surrounded by, by pragmatists in, in our world and, uh, you know, in the world of religion and even too often in churches. But a typical statement could be, for instance, well, if your religion works for you, that's good, that's fine. You see, the, the question is not whether it's truth, but whether it works for you. And so that's the danger, and I'm afraid that though they didn't call it that, and he, Paul, you know, I don't see him elsewhere going this route, that the thought was, this will clear this up, and then I can move on with preaching the gospel unhindered. That's a pragmatic way of looking at things, being more concerned with the desired results than whether it's true or consistent with the truth. Now, once again, I want to tell you, that's not like Paul. That's not the way he, he acted elsewhere. But it appears that that's what's taking place. Now think about the potential fallout for his decision. Uh, why, why would Paul, following through on James' request, result in a, a compromise? Well, if he were to go through all, the, all of those steps of cleansing and purification, and then... He went into the temple, and a sacrifice took place, even if he, he himself didn't do it. And he were there looking on, had even aided these four in, in taking part in that. What would the message be? Here is the Apostle Paul that had called the Galatians foolish because they had gone back to those ways. Here is the Apostle Paul saying what Christ did is enough. And yet, if he were to stand there and preside next to a sacrifice or in some way take part, at the very least, it would muddy up the waters of the gospel. 
It would cause some to say, okay, well, there's, there's Paul. He's taken part in sacrifices. Evidently, we should too if we're good Jews. And that probably could have started a movement. And there would have been others that would have written him off in saying he doesn't even really understand the gospel because there he is in a sacrifice. So what happened? If Paul went through this, he would have muddied up the doctrine for those who were believers. But I want, I want to leave us with this, and that is how God dealt with Paul's decision. Sometimes I marvel. All, let, me, let me back up. I always marvel at God's patience with us. Flawed sinners. Many times wanting to do the right thing, but bumbling through and messing up. What would you do if you were God and your chief spokesman for grace was headed toward participating in something that would prove that salvation is by works? What would you do? When I asked myself that question, I'd say, I'd stop him. Now, I probably would have killed him. <laughs> That's it. God dealt differently. But he did spare Paul from losing his witness. Look what he does. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, so there he is in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching uh, everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Then all the city was stirred up, verse 30, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. There were seven days of purification. Paul seems to have gone unhindered for six days but before he could participate in the sacrifice, there was a riot. <laughs> By God's grace, <laughs> there was a riot. God stopped him. Now, you might say, well, that wasn't very gentle of God. What we're going to see in the weeks to come is that it was this that put Paul on the path of having perhaps his greatest witness. But God doesn't wipe him out. He doesn't give up on the Apostle Paul, but he does put a stop to it. He takes him out, as it were, before he could participate in some kind of a blood sacrifice that would have been right in front of some of the same ones who had cried for the crucifixion of Christ. And God took him out of that. And I want to say he spared him from it. He stopped him from going down that path the rest of the way. 
And not only that, God didn't give up on Paul. In spite of the fact that he, I believe, was at a low point of compromise, God didn't put him out of commission. It's not the end of his usefulness. Acts 23, if we were to jump ahead, it says this, verse 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Here's a preview of what's going to happen in the, the weeks to come, in the next chapters that are, are coming up as we get toward the end of the book of Acts. We will see Paul, who then is thrust in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the governor Felix, in front of the governor Festus, in front of King Agrippa, the imperial guard. God used Paul in spite of his compromise. Now, I don't know what that says to you, but that brings me encouragement. If he's still going to use him, if he's still going to use him, that it's all about what God wants and not our weaknesses, that we can spend all of our time beating ourselves up about. We mentioned that today's Reformation Sunday. That's the Sunday closest to October 31st. Back in 1517, Martin Luther walked up to the church door in Wittenberg and he, he tacked a list up there, 95 things his 95 theses, these statements of concerns. His goal was not to bring down a church. His goal was to address these things. Let's talk about these things. And that's how you did it at the time. You would tack it on the church door and then it would start a debate. Well, some see that as the beginning of the Reformation. In my view, the Reformation was coming for a long time with pre-reformers taking stands here and there, but indeed, this was a turning point. Later, being arrested, he was put before the council on trial at Worms. He stood before them and, and in front of him they had his writings on, on a table and they said, you have to recant of these or you put yourself in grave danger. This was from the established church's perspective in that day. What will you do? You must recant. Now, in the great movies, it shows him saying, here I stand. Well, what he did was he looked at the table and said, can I have 24 hours? Let me think about this. Because I'm not even sure I wrote everything on that table. And so they said, okay, 24 hours. He came back and he said, you know what, there's some things on that table that that I wasn't very temperate when I wrote it. 
I probably would word them differently. Yeah, there, there's some things that I, I would do differently there. But then he made this statement. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot, I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And he stood upon that. What did he stand upon? Upon the Word of God. Not upon pragmatism that would have enabled him perhaps even to recant. Not upon compromise. But his conscience guided by the Holy Spirit with the Word of God as the foundation would not permit Him. And so we must ask, where are we tempted to damaging compromise? As a church, as individuals, has pragmatism crept into my way of thinking. If it works, do it. And what will keep me from that? First of all, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Yeah, even after you're saved, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Go back to those core truths. And then gaze on the cross of Christ and his sacrifice. And look to the word of God. In those, there is no compromise. What happens if I've failed and I've compromised or I've fallen into pragmatism? Well, you have and you will. But understand that the Bible, to a great degree, is not a record of successful people doing heroic things. It's people who have failed along the way, but whose great God takes even those failures and redeems them and makes them useful. That must be our encouragement that we as broken vessels are still useful for Him. That's us. Thanks be to God. Let's bow. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't give up on Paul. Thank you that you didn't kill him like I would have. Thank you that you used him. And it shows us that you can use even we who 
can fall into those temptations. Will you forgive us? Will you help us trust you more? Will you help us never to recant of you or your things? But help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.